Good morning, brothers and sisters. This is the day the Lord has made, and we are rejoicing and being glad in it. Looking at Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chance to open up your inerrant, inspired word. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your spirit. We ask you to teach us, lead us into all truth, and Lord, that it would continue to change us and mold us and shape us into the very image of Jesus Christ. Father, we're grateful. And Lord, we pray for grace for the preacher and those listening that we might be changed for your glory. Amen. In this passage, we're looking at Paul talking to a people who were alienated from God at one point. They were Gentiles. And the promise came to Abraham and it was supposed to spread to all the peoples on the face of the earth. But for a time in God's providence, the Gentiles were kind of kept out of being close to God. And we know in our own lives, we've been in situations where we felt alienated, where we felt lonely, where we feel by ourselves. I remember spending um, Christmas in England one year when I was playing basketball, and it was a very lonely time. No family, no friends, um, just kind of there over the Christmas holidays. My most recent event uh, of feeling lonely was um, this last year, Jenna and mom and I took a little trip to Cancun. Um, Just landing at the airport was enough of feeling all by yourself. As you're just this, this huge hive of people moving around and you don't know where you're going and there's no signs in English and you're just trying to figure out where you're going. But it came to a, an apex when we were, we had gone to a special trip and we were coming back. It was nighttime and I had somehow missed the road that we're supposed to be on. It's dark. There are no street signs there. And so we pull into a place that looks like a 7-Eleven, but it's not. And there's two men standing there. And that's one thing I I do. I do communicate well in different cultures. So uh, I got out of the car and I walked up to these men. And um, so the first Spanish phrase I used was, do you speak English? And uh, not in Spanish, in English. To which they looked at me like, gringo, we don't know what you're talking about. And so I proceed then to go into my best Spanish, which is usually English with a slight Hispanic accent. And adding an O at the end of all the words. Um, And I'm doing hand gestures, and they're looking at me like, where does this guy come from? And they finally figured out that I, they found out where I needed to go, and they began to try to tell me how to get there which was amazing in the fact that uh, I couldn't really understand what they were saying either. So they got their hand gestures going. It was quite an event. And my wife and my daughter were in the car, just, I'm sure, smiling and laughing. But I felt very alienated. I felt very alone. I was not in a comfortable place. This is where we all have been. This is what Ephesians is telling us, is that we were all, at one point, alienated from God. And we're told in chapter 2 what God has done to solve that problem. And we've seen in the first part of chapter 2 that we were, we were enemies of God, that we were under his wrath, 
And it talked about our condition. And then it told us, but God was merciful to us. And he poured out his grace on us and love in Jesus Christ. And he has made us new creations. And we are now to live out this life and all the good things he has for us according to his will. When we come into chapter 2, verse 11, Bob has already covered the the first two verses, 11 and 12. And there we're looking at... um, where we were as Gentiles. He's directing the conversation to the Gentiles. The Ephesian church was a Gentile population. And so he directs that conversation to them. And today what we're going to look at is we're going to look at this, this passage breaks down into three sections. The first section in which Bob's covered, I'm just going to briefly hit and move on, is we were alienated from God and each other without hope. That's what it tells us in 11 and 12. The Gentiles were alienated from the Jews and they were alienated from God and they had no hope. The second point we're going to look at is in verses 13 through 18. We see that we were brought near to God and each other by Christ's blood sacrifice. Christ's incredible sacrifice brought us near not only to God but also to each other. And in this situation, it brought the Gentiles together with the who? The Jews. And then the last part, 19 through 22, we're going to see that we are placed in a holy, united, worshiping community. So we were alienated, we were reconciled, and we're placed in a community that is united and worships Christ. So we're going to look at that as we move through the passage. As we look to begin with, we were alienated from God and each other without hope, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. What what a statement. That's where we were. Without hope and without God. So here we are. We see, first of all, that they were despised by the Jews. It was really hard as Jesus preached the gospel to his own people for them to understand that the gospel was someday going to go to the Gentiles. They felt that Jesus was their Messiah. He had come for them. And when Jesus said um, in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When, they, when he said world, that was like shock. To the Jewish crowd. They would have quoted that verse, for God so loved us, the Jewish people, that Christ came to die on the cross for our sins. The idea of the world was outside their parameter. They looked down on the Gentiles. The Gentiles were dogs to them. When they went through Samaria, they wouldn't go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria 
because Samaritans were half-breeds. And when they ever came back from a Gentile area, they would dust the dirt off their feet. We remember the situation where Paul has to confront Peter because Peter didn't want to eat with the Gentiles. So there's this rivalry and this lack of peace between peoples, Jews and Gentiles. And we see it, in, we see it racially, we see it economically, we see this constant clash with people. And the world all cries for, let's have peace. We're going to understand what it takes to have peace today. We'll understand that in this passage. So we see that the Jews were called the uncircumcision. Two, we see that they were, we, were, we, were, we and they, since we're Gentiles, were separated from Christ. We didn't live in proximity to him. We weren't in part of the nation of Israel. And we were outside looking in. That's where the Gentiles were. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Not being in Israel, that's where all the spiritual activity took place. This is where God gave his commands on Mount Sinai. This is the, the promised land. There's, here's where the temple is. Here's where all the history of God's faithful providence for the people is there. Here's the prophets. They, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. We read in this little short verse. Strangers to the covenant promise. We didn't know about the covenant promise. As Gentiles, we didn't know that God had promised to Abraham that he would make him a great nation and that through him all the nations on the earth would be blessed. We were completely outside of that. Therefore, we had no hope and we were without God. We created gods in our own image and did different things like that, but we were without hope. This is the situation that we were in. Notice how this passage in 11 through 22 parallels 2 through 10. In the first three verses, we hear the same thing, don't we? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of um, disobedience. We were sons of disobedience, and we were simply fulfilling the desires of our flesh. So we were alienated. Secondly, praise God, we see the same thing happen in in verse 13, but now. Remember back in Ephesians 2, 4, but what? God. This is where we were. This is our situation. No hope, no God, but God. So here we see in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once very far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What an incredible statement. You who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Back to Ephesians 1. Paul talked about it earlier in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through what? His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What an amazing thing. How can the crucifixion of Jesus because of us Bring us to God. 
you would think it would be the opposite. That our sins that put him on the cross would have forever, ever, ever kept us from ever being reconciled to him. What an amazing thing that his death brings us close to him. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, that's his first coming, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not the, not the tabernacle they had in the wilderness, made with skins and poles and all that, but he went into the Holy of Holies. He entered into that once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption for if the blood of of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh so they give some kind of outward sanctification How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Christ is amazing because Christ is amazing and his life was perfect and without sin. And he was the lamb of God who shed his blood that we who were far off might be drawn near notice in verse 14 what his sacrifice does it obviously we know that the sacrifice brings forgiveness of sins amen we understand that but look look what it also says it purifies our conscience from dead works We all have a conscience, and we've all been involved in things that we wish we'd never been involved in. And these things, even whether they're religious or not, they are dead works. But notice that the blood of Jesus purifies our conscience from dead works. For what purpose? To serve the living God. Praise God that we don't have to live where we used to be. Praise God we don't have to have what we've done in the past hang on us like a, like, a, like a blanket, like a wet blanket the rest of our lives. Praise God that his blood has forgiven us of our sin, has set us free, and has, has prepared us to serve him. One pastor wrote, Once we were prodigals of the universe dwelling in the far country, we had spent our substance in riotous living, And we're in the grip of famine and want. Nobody cared. Our place was with the swine, and our daily bread was the husk that they ate. In our sin, we were a disgrace to the one who had created us. We did not even have the good sense of the prodigal mentioned in Luke 15, for we did not know our way home. But we we groped in darkness and blindly longed for a God we did not know. But 
When we were yet a great way off, the Father saw us and had compassion on us. He ran and fell on our necks and kissed us. Now we who were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. This is why we sing, isn't it? Because of what the blood of Christ has done for us. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The sacrifice of Jesus says this. I love you and I'm shedding my blood that you can be forgiven and that you can be made whole and you can become holy. And if I've given you Jesus, what will I withhold from you? When you go to pray, he's given you Jesus. Whatever you ask according to his will that you need to live in his kingdom and serve in his kingdom, ask Because if he's given you Jesus, you have the rest. Who gave him up for all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he to condemn? Christ? Jesus? Nope. Christ won't condemn. Why? Because he's the one who died. More than that, who was raised is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus died for us, he's at the right hand of God, and he's constantly interceding for you and for me before the Father. Romans 8 reiterates this, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an incredible truth. So we're brought near by his blood. The second point in this little passage here uh, that we're going through, Christ is our peace. We remember the prophecy in Isaiah, right? That he is the what? Prince of peace. Because of his blood, he has brought peace. Next, he has made the Jew and the Gentile one. They have been made one because of what he has done. He says here, for he himself is our peace, verse 14, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. It was, it was going on and ongoing and ongoing. But he broke that wall down by his shedding of his blood. He has made peace in that situation by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The Jews were given all these ceremonial laws that they were to keep. And what it did was it made them a peculiar people and it separated them from everyone else. And they ate certain kinds of foods. And what it did, they couldn't eat with the Gentiles because the Gentiles were eating different types of foods. So all these different requirements that God had put on on the Jews to make them a separate and distinct people and to point them to Jesus also had separated them from the Gentiles. But what has happened with Christ is Christ has broken down the wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
and his, he, is, he has fulfilled the ceremonial law. And so now what we have is these two people who were against each other, he says, now are brought together as one. What an amazing, amazing thing. He goes on to say he's creating one new man out of these two bodies. And he's bringing peace to them. The cross not only destroys the hostility between man and God, but also between the Jew and the Gentile. So when Christ died, the vertical hostility stopped, as well as the what? Horizontal horizontal hostility. What an amazing thing. A Jew and a Gentile could actually sit down and worship God together. The world looks for peace. And we continue to try to bring racial reconciliation and economic reconciliation and ethnic reconciliation. And whenever we go into an area and we liberate them from one dictator, all of a sudden what happens? The ethnic problems begin again, don't they? There is no peace in this world. There will be no peace in this world except for those who have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And for those of us who were brought near by the blood of Jesus, when we're relating with somebody else who's been brought near by the blood of Jesus, we're brothers. We're sisters. We are together. We were both needy beggars who needed a savior. He has saved us, he's cleansed us, he's changed our hearts, and he's brought peace with us in God, and he's brought peace with us in Man, only the blood of Jesus can bring peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. Notice also in this passage it says, um, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. You who were far off was the what? Gentiles. You who were near is the what? Jews. Christ preached peace. What was his message? It was the gospel. It was the gospel. The Messiah has come. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Repent and put your faith and trust in Christ. And you can be a child of the king. That message still needs to be preached, amen? We live in a country that's being torn apart with all kinds of conflict. Only the Prince of Peace, only people who've been washing the blood of Jesus will be able to experience peace with each other. There is no peace apart from Christ. Notice that he also says here at the very end, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Both of these groups now have the same access. The same access to God the Father through the power of his spirit. Hodge says this, God lived in the temple. Those living near his dwelling place and having access to him were his people. Israel was near. The Gentiles were far away. They lived at a distance and had no freedom of access to the place where God revealed his presence. Among the latter Jews, 
The act of receiving a proselyte was called making him near. So if we had a, a Gentile who wanted to accept Judaism, the act of him doing that was called bringing him near. Being far from God included both separation from his people and spiritual distance or alienation from God himself. So to be brought near includes both introduction into the church and reconciliation with God. And these two ideas are clearly presented and intended by the apostle in this whole context. He goes on to say this double reconciliation is affected through the blood of Christ. So we were alienated from God. God, by his blood, made us have peace with God, and it brought reconciliation between the Jew and the Gentile. We are, we are one people. We are the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, together. Remember the passage where it says there's no Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female, but we're all what? One in Christ. There is one body. There's not two. Now, this Jew-Gentile division could have easily splintered the church apart, couldn't it? Well, we're God's promised people, and I don't know what y'all are doing here. And well, God just told us we can be in here too, and here we go. We have this huge fight going on between those two. But God brought them together. His death brought them together. Now, what's interesting is the tables have almost been turned, haven't they? At first, everything seemed to be happening with Israel, with the Jewish people. They had, they had the Mount Sinai experience. They had the law and the prophets. They had the Messiah come to them. They had all these things happen. And the Jews, you, you'll, see some, you'll see some Gentiles here and there that receive the grace of God. You see Naaman. You see the woman at the well. You see different people. But, but generally, the gospel's coming to Israel. And the synagogues are full with people trying to worship God. Now look what's happened. Because there's been a hardening, Romans says, of the Jews, they have rejected Christ and they have been broken off of the tree. The salvation tree, Israel has for a time, because of their hardness, been broken off. Does that, does that mean that no Jews get saved? No. It just means that what? A majority of Jews are not coming into the kingdom. There's just a few who are coming in. And right now, guess who really has wide open access to the gospel? The Gentiles. As you look around the globe, of all the churches of Jesus Christ, they're predominantly what? Gentile. And Paul tells us in Romans that this hardening has taken place so that the Gentiles can come into the kingdom. And once that number is complete, then he will bring the Jews back in and graft them back in. And his warning was to Gentiles, don't become proud looking at the Jews because they got broken off because of pride and rejection of the Messiah. The same thing can happen to you. So now the ball's really in the Gentile court. The gospel's going forth to all people groups because of that. But God still has a place for Israel. Because he has a kingdom that's built on who? Israel and Gentiles together in one body. So rejoice, Gentiles. 
that we who were far off had been brought close. He didn't have to do that. He did not have to do that. All he had to do was build another boat and put somebody on it and flood the whole world again. Do you think the world needs to be flooded again? Absolutely. The wickedness of men's hearts is great. But right now, God has made a way through the blood of Christ that all who will trust in him can be saved. So rejoice as we sit here today, looking at your fellow Gentiles, knowing that by the grace of God, you are here. Okay, so we've been reconciled, so now what? what what's, what's left? Next, 19 through 22, we are placed in a holy, united, worshiping community. He doesn't just, we're not just saved by ourselves. Now, a lot of times when you read the Bible and you see the word you, you usually read it as me. You think of it as talking to you, just you individually. The context of Ephesians is not that. Notice who the letter's written to. It didn't say to a saint in Ephesus. It said to what? These saints, plural. He is writing to the church. So when he says you were dead in trespasses, is he talking about you individually being dead in trespasses? Well, that's true. But the real emphasis is what? You as a people were dead in trespasses and sins. And now as we get over here, he says you what? Gentiles. He's talking in the plural to these people. We have, a, we have a phenomenon going on here that I'm sure happens throughout the ages where people don't think they need the church. And we get to the point where the, we see stuff in the church that's not going on right and, this, and that we've been hurt by people in the church and we get to this point where, you know what, I really don't need the church anymore and I'm just going to go in my home with my little family and we're going to have church. The Bible doesn't have that concept. The Bible has the concept of a community of believers put together under the blood of Jesus that live life together. And you're not going to be who you need to be in Jesus if you're not part of a body of believers. And unfortunately, I think, and this, this isn't true just for homeschoolers, but homeschoolers are kind of maverick. We kind of do stuff different. If you say A, we say B. If you say do this, we say, I'm going to do that. And to an extent, there's some good in that. But sometimes what happens is that we get to the point where we decide whether we really want to be part of the church or whether we don't want to be part of the church or how committed we are. And when you see the context of the Bible... Paul is dealing with people in a context of believers. We are the body of Christ. And there's things that are not going to happen with you spiritually if you're not part of a body of believers. A lot of the old covenants in the church would say, and if you come to a point where you don't want to be at this church anymore, it doesn't say it in that kind of words, but you know, if you're leaving to go to another church, it says what? Go to another church and plug in and carry on your same covenant commitment with each other. So we're to be put into a 
holy, united, worshiping community. Let's read that, 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you catch the emphasis of that passage? So because of the blood of Christ, we're no longer aliens and strangers. I can tell you when I got back from Cancun, it was good to land in San Antonio where I could read the traffic signs and I knew where I was going. I was home. That's what he's saying here. You who were no, weren't at home, who were strangers and aliens, you are now what? You're home. You're home. You're a fellow citizen and a member of the household of God. John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new commandment that I give you, that you love one another. Even as I love you, you are to love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Being part of this community means we love each other. We care about each other. We're involved in each other's lives. We're concerned for each other. Notice this passage also says it was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What's he saying there? He's saying the teaching of the prophets, the teaching of the apostles, the word of God is what? The foundation of this community. How are you going to function in this community? You've got to know the word. You've got to be growing in the word and obeying the word so that you know how to act in, this, in God's community. Notice, he says, who's the cornerstone of this community? Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What's the cornerstone? When you're building a building, it's the, it's the large stone on the corner. That supports a wall going this way and a wall going this way. You'll see this sometimes if you go to old churches, you'll see like a huge cornerstone. And on it they'll have like when the church was founded and all this and that. Christ is the cornerstone. One wall was the Jews. One wall was the what? Gentiles. And built upon the very word of God. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter picks up this language that we're talking about here. Verse 4, 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to him, talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the horror is for you who believe... But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock 
of offense. Jesus was a rock of offense to the Jews. They stumbled over him and they fell. And they didn't find the salvation they were looking for. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You could just almost parenthetically pull this passage out and drop it right here in Ephesians 2. We're being built into a community of faith. What, according to Peter, are they supposed to be doing? First of all, they're laying hold of the cornerstone, aren't they? They've trusted Christ. And they're being built into a spiritual house. You're a stone. Hopefully you're not a rolling stone. Spurgeon says the stone sitting by itself is a good-for-nothing stone. What are stones meant to be? They're meant to be built into a what? A house. Yeah, I know, but, you know, those people down there, I don't like the way they worship. I don't like that music, or I don't like, you know, however they do what they do. I don't really care for that. So I'm just going to worship at home. May I say you're a good-for-nothing stone? Because you're meant to do what? Be built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. Lifting up prayers to God. What do priests do? They bring people to God, don't they? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he tells them in verse 9, your chosen race, a holy nation, a people for whose possession? His possession. You're not being built up for your own household. It's for his household, right? That's what we do. And what are we supposed to do? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How do you do that? In the context of a community of believers. Jesus said, all men will know that you're my disciples if you what? Love one another. It's hard to love one another when you're not there. It's hard to love one another when you're not part of a community. It's hard to demonstrate that when you're by yourself. The scripture has no concept of the Lone Ranger Christian. It's not there. Paul wasn't the Lone Ranger Christian. He was constantly exhorting and encouraging the bodies of believers that he had helped start. Isn't this great in verse 10? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, praise God, we've now received mercy, haven't we? And he now urges you in verse 11, how should this community function? We should act as aliens and strangers in this world, shouldn't we? And we should avoid the evil conduct that's out there 
But we're to live in such a way that even when the Gentiles criticize us, they know there's something different about us. To the point that, notice at the very end, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that mean? That as you live your life in community with other believers and they see the light of the kingdom, that even though they are criticizing you, one day their eyes will be opened and they'll see Jesus for who he is. And they will do what? They will glorify God on the day that he comes. Do we live by ourselves a lot? Yes, we do. We're constantly moving around and we go to work. We do these sort of things. But we're part of a what? A bigger body. We're part of a local community. That's part of what? Local communities all over the world. And communities that have existed from righteous Abel forward to the end. We're all part of one large, 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 large family. And we desire to be with each other. Why? Because the blood of Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility between us. And we have a love for each other that's not explainable. You can meet somebody that you don't know from Adam and within two minutes, there's a bond there because they, they have been bought by Jesus' blood and you have. We're to be part of this community. Notice here he says, wherever it's at, back in Ephesians. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What's the purpose of us being saved? To become holy, right? To be sanctified, to put off the old man, to put on the new man, to put off the flesh and put on the spirit. How does that happen? He expects it to happen as these people are together. And as we rub up against each other, we are to be growing in holiness. You're going to have a hard time growing in holiness by yourself. A little rock over here by yourself. You're meant to be part of a community of faith. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Notice it's a holy temple. What's a temple, what's a temple for? Worship. Nothing more natural, brothers and sisters, than for us to worship and let our voices sing in this place. Built together into a dwelling place. So you have been saved. You've been alienated. You've been reconciled. And you're being put into a spiritual house. You are a stone. And you are to exercise your gifts with each other. Do you know what this looks like? Let's turn to Acts 2 and we're finished. Here is Pentecost and a, and a church growing in Jerusalem. And I want you to look to chapter 2, verse 42 of Acts. Verse 41 says, and so those who received his word, this was Peter preaching, were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow, that's a fast church growth. 3,000 souls in one day, bam. We have a church. We got a big church. Verse 42, and they did what? 
This is just a little picture of what it means to be part of a community. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of breaking bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is a robust Christian community. If you turn to chapter 4 of Acts, they ran into some opposition. They healed a man who was, who was lame and they got drug in before the Sadducees and they got kind of beat up. Look what happened in verse 23. And when they were released after this, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, which is what? Don't talk about Jesus again. Are we hearing that today? We're hearing that a lot today, aren't we? Don't talk about Jesus. Keep that inside the church. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Don't be surprised, right? What's going on today? It's been going on, right? The nations set themselves against Christ, the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Jew and the what? The Gentile. Along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Jesus was crucified by two groups of people, the Gentiles and the what? Jews. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and do signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We've been saved for a purpose. To be put into a spiritual house. To be a community of believers that will proclaim the excellences of Jesus to all those that come across our path. And will we face opposition? Yes, we will. And I can't promise if you come to the next prayer meeting, the place is going to be shaken when we get through praying. Wouldn't that be glorious if it did? But we would still all be what? Filled with his spirit and speaking his word boldly. We have a mission. It's to be part of a spiritual house where we can become holy and we can grow in grace and become more like our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today.
We thank you that you saved us for a purpose, to do good works which you prepared in advance for us to walk in them, that you saved us to worship, that you saved us to do the one another's with each other, that you saved us to be part of a body of believers, and that we are to be a robust and flourishing community that loves each other and cares each other and exhorts one another and admonishes one another and carries each other's burdens and proclaims the excellencies of Christ. Father, we desire that more and more here. We pray that you would do it by the power of your spirit. Thank you that though we were once far away, we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Father, may we find others who've been, who are far away and bring them near by your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.